Well, good morning, Lakewood, and good morning, Lakewood live stream. Wherever you're uh, listening to this uh, service today or watching at home or in the living room or visiting someone else, we're just delighted that you're here and delighted to consider together what God's going to do in our lives. Uh, he is at work, as we've heard in prayer and as Pastor Steve uh, talked to us. Uh, for those of you that I haven't had the privilege of meeting, my name is Dr. Martin Gies. I was 40 years as a pastor, a husband of Marcia, the father of three children, and uh, now 13 grandchildren and counting grandfather, and some of which are here today. And it's my highest honor to know Jesus and to be in those roles, but I'm honored to be here as well. Uh, the Oak Hills Fellowship uh, is in prayer for you, the college and the three mission ministries, and we look forward to what God has in store for us together. Uh, if you have access to a Bible, I'm going to be sharing mostly from James chapter 4. <clears throat> so you want to open your Bible to James chapter 4. And I'd like to read with you the first 10 verses of that letter. It's a hard grace that James writes about. There are some very significant and direct statements that are made in these first 10 verses, uh, verses of confrontation, but also verses of consolation. And so uh, follow along as I read from James chapter 4. <clears throat> what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. <laughs> you kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. <clears throat> you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? And anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. And that's why Scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And then this promise. And he will lift you up. Amen. Just a few days ago, it was a privilege for Marcia and I to attend one of those happy events of life. It was a combination retirement of a dear friend and a birthday of a dear friend. <clears throat> and we enjoyed reconnecting with folk that we have known and love. And in the course of conversations, we reconnected with a young mother, the daughter of one of the honored guests that night. And our conversation turned towards her world of little people and the guidance and superintendence of little lives and the matter of discipline. And she had had a recent encounter of discipline with her four-year-old son. And I don't remember, it's probably not important what the infraction was, but discipline was required. And in the midst of that discipline, the four-year-old responded in some ways like we respond to discipline. He stuck out his little chest and said to his mother, I don't love you anymore. You cannot come in my room. 
And then he paused for a moment, and he said, before you leave, can I have a hug and a kiss? <laughs> We're often torn in that parentheses in life. <laughs> we make a mess, and our authority steps in. In our case, as believers, that's the Lord Jesus, and he disciplines us, and we don't like it. We don't like the discipline. And our emotions are ambivalent. On the one hand, we're tempted quietly or not so quietly to say, God, I'm not sure I love you at least as much anymore, and I'm not sure I want you to come in my room. But before you leave, could I have a big hug and a kiss? You understand what I'm saying? Those, you know, we're compelled toward him and we're repelled by the discipline. The young mom's response to the four-year-old's pronouncement was insightful. And she is a young mom, but she has uh, great wisdom. And she said this, Oh, honey, that's okay. I love you enough for both of us. And there, too, is a reflection of God's relationship with us. In those moments when we have messed up and God brings discipline, and we don't like the discipline. And we are torn in terms of our attraction or lack of it to our Savior. The Spirit of God in that still quiet voice says, that's, that's okay. I love you enough for both of us. One of the great paradoxes of living life and doing church in a fallen world is that it's easier to get broken than it is to remain whole. It's easier to be hurt than it is to be healed. It's easier to fall into sin, whether intentionally or unintentionally, than to fall into the arms of a rescuing Savior. The problem, of course, is one we carry with us. We carry it inside us. And the remedy, of course, is one as a believer who lives within us, but it was also an authority over us. We walk or drift into trouble we find ourselves hurting. We create a need for discipline, which we'll see in a few moments God promises to give. But sometime in our hurt, we resent the help. And we're sometimes confused by it. And we're torn, as that little boy was, in our emotions. How good to know that the Spirit of God says again and again, that's okay, I love you enough for both of us. So here we are in life, and then as individuals, as a church family, we have some troubles, some of which we've caused, some of which we've experienced that were caused by others, but in the course of it, we hurt. And there's confusion, and there's sometimes embarrassment, and we become ambivalent, we're torn. What are we to do? There is one who loves us, as you know, and as I've alluded, enough for both of us. And I'm here this morning to talk about what to do. You see, between the hurt and the healing <laughs> lies a process. We're going to talk this morning and a week from now about dimensions of that process. It's God's process of healing our hurts and healing our hearts. It is a process as old in terms of the relationship with God and mankind, as old as the creation of mankind, 
the Garden of Eden. It says, old certainly as the inauguration of the church. And so I want to begin this two parts uh, talk with a review with you. None of this that follows immediately will be new to most of you. I want to review the underlying causes of our troubles and our sometime recurrent need for discipline, and then go on into God's process of healing. So let's understand the problem. <laughs> Nothing new, but important for us to see it. Three parts to the problem that are underscored in Scripture. First, the problem within us, it has to do with our flesh. That's the Bible word. And sin, our fallen nature. <clears throat> James chapter 4, looking there again as you look at your Bibles, what causes fights and quarrels? What, you know, what's made the mess? Well, it's within us. We want something. Sometimes we don't get it. Then we set out, I'm paraphrasing here, to get it whatever way we can. And we fight and fuss. Sometimes we don't have what we need or desire because we haven't asked God. We're too busy getting it ourselves. But sometimes when we ask, we don't receive it from God because we've asked with <laughs> wrong motives. It's not really about a relationship with him. It's about us getting what we want when we want it so that we can do what we want when we want to. All of us struggle with that internal battle at times, at times greatly and times not as much. Selfishness, wrong desires, wrong motives, self-centeredness. That's what we're born to in a fallen race. <clears throat> and we're not alone. Everybody struggles with that. The Apostle Paul, Romans 7, wrote of his own titanic struggle. He's an apostle, for goodness sake. And he writes, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. What I hate, I do it. He speaks for all of us. Not every moment, not every day, not all the time, but often. That battle with selfishness, and it makes a mess. And it creates the need for discipline. There's a second thing, as if that wasn't enough. We've not only got the problem within, we've got the pull from without. It's not only our flesh, it's the world. The world system. Now, not the trees and shrubs and flowers and dirt and the stuff materially that we build on it. Not that. No, it's the value system of the world. The broken, corrupt value system. Verse 4 of James 4. Stay with me in that letter. <clears throat> you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship, intimacy with the world, is hatred toward God? I remember early on in my Christian life as I began to read the Bible, <laughs> when I would get to that that statement, you know, friendship with the world is hatred toward you? Really? Really? Isn't there some kind of middle ground? I mean, if I, if I can't lean in a little bit to the place that I spent all my life living without hating God, what's, what's that all about? Well, the pull of the fallen world system has always been strong, possibly never stronger than today. It's in the societal systems we, that surround us. It's in the values of our culture. It's in the air that we breathe, if you will. Everywhere around us, listen now, everywhere around us is an alternative to the kingdom that God wants to build. 
All around us in the world, there is another kingdom that is being built that's separate from and hostile to the kingdom that God is at work building. And because of the global reach of communications and media, <laughs> there is no one that is immune to the pull of the world. I'm old enough to uh, remember an innovative television series called Star Trek. And much later on, there was a series of movies made called Star Wars. One of the things, and I understand there's some remakes of Star Trek and so on. But one of the things that those two themes had in common, and I thought it was pretty cool at the time, as a, especially as a kid, is that they have tractor beams. They flip a switch and they can just suck a spaceship right in. But it was kind of scary when it was an evil power that would flip on their tractor beam and, and suck the Enterprise in. Well, think about tractor beams in the world. There is a power at work to pull us away from God, to draw us away from the kingdom he's building inside us and among us. There is another source of power. It's not only the problem within our flesh and the pull from without the world. There is a person who opposes us. Verse 4, continuing, you adulterous people, friendship of the world is hatred toward God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Well, why is that? Why is the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of God, mutually exclusive? Because the world system lies under the temporary jurisdiction of the God of this world, small g, and the enemy of God and his creation. Now, alluded to in verse 4, but named in verse 7 where the Word of God says, resist who? Resist the devil. The devil. A book was written years and years and years ago that summarizes these three forces, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those three things conspire. They're a nefarious trio that impacts our lives. And we, in our fallenness, are complicit. We are sometime willing participants in their pull in our lives. Now, we're acquainted pretty well if we've walked with the Lord for a while. We're acquainted with the impact of the struggle on our lives, but we're less aware on the impact of this struggle in the churches we attend, or in this case, our church here, this church. We battle these forces in our heart, but we hold out the hope that when we get together on Sunday or with the same folk at other times of the week, we'll be in a sort of safe zone. After all, since Jesus is Lord of the church, shouldn't it be possible that um, the struggles we have outside wouldn't appear inside? The answer to that is nope. Why not? Well, because, as I think you're probably aware, the church and every, every local gathering of it is made of 
of people, just like you and me. So when we show up, we bring this stuff with us. It hurts to say it, but we do. Many years ago now, a, a great teacher by the name of Howard Hendricks that taught lots of folk that you, whose names you would recognize was counseling a young couple, and they were telling him about their struggle to find a perfect church. And they, they had uh, described some of the things uh, about the church they were looking for. They didn't call it a, a search for a perfect church. It was Howard that did. He said, well, it sounds like what you're, what you're looking for is a perfect church. And they, you know, after a little thought, they agreed. Well, I guess that's true. And Howard Hendricks, with his uh, typical... Humor responded forthrightly, well, don't join it. You'll ruin it. <laughs> Howard is right. Churches struggle because people struggle. We bring it with us. So, in his word, God has been completely honest with us about the connection between struggling people and struggling churches. The problem in our understanding it is that when we open our Bibles and read the New Testament, we look at the churches of the New Testament through the lens of the instruction that's been given to them and to us. You with me so far? We open our Bible and we look at those churches in the Bible through the lens of the instruction that's been given to them rather than being aware of the trouble that prompted the instruction. In fact, I've had the opportunity to visit with leaders in different places, and once in a while, when I'm talking to leaders, I'll have a pastor say, well, what I really want is for our church to be a New Testament church. And I think I understand the spirit of that desire, but now more frequently I'm apt to say, really? Which one? They were all a mess. Are you sure you want a New Testament church? Let me give you some examples. The church in Rome struggled with division, pride, prejudice, lack of compassion, and a tendency to take justice into their own hands. The church at Corinth was a mess, divided by celebritism, addicted to power and influence. They were accommodating to sin. They were okay with a guy shacking up with his stepmom, and they were getting drunk in the communion service. Anybody want to pastor that church? The church in Galatia had more rules than righteousness. They were Pharisaic, faulty in doctrine, and ungodly in their behavior. The church at Ephesus was confused about spirituality, unaware of spiritual warfare, and they'd forsaken their first love. They drifted away from Jesus. The church at Philippi was spiritually minded and quite proud of it. Thank you. And the ladies' fellowship at Philippi had turned into the ladies' feud at Philippi. The church at Colossae was subject to false teaching. The church at Thessalonica was confused about prophecy and prone to fatalism. Their motto was, well, sell what you have and do nothing till Jesus comes back. Things always look darkest before they get totally black. <laughs> the Apostle Paul writes in the autobiographical segment of 2 Corinthians 11, 
Some of you are familiar with that passage. He lists all the troubles he's gone through. Do you remember? Beaten, scourged, and shipwrecked, and dangers, and all, prison, and all this stuff. It's tough sledding. You know what he inserts at the end of that summary? He says this. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all of the churches. That little word, for all of the churches. He did not write, I, play, <coughs> I face daily the pressure of my concern for Corinth, but everybody else is doing fine. Or Thessalonica, but everybody else is doing fine. I face daily the pressure of my concern for every single church. Loved ones, when the Apostle Paul walked the earth, the question on the lips of many <coughs> Christian leaders was, Will the church of Jesus Christ survive until tomorrow? Or will it be killed off? Or will it simply implode from the inside because it's so messed up? That's why the New Testament was written. Isn't that something? That's why we received it. The list goes on. Pastor Steve alluded to you it's studying it, so I won't go over each of those things. But Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, all of them struggling. Five called to repentance. Two, very weak. Very weak. And so it has been our struggle all the way through the centuries through the 21st. So here we are. Any problems with the 21st century church? Mm. Let me give you a short list, and we'll come back and talk a bit more next week about these things. And I'll pick on, you know, my, my fabric, my DNA is Minnesotan, uh, Western Minnesota farm boy. So I can tell this on us. Up here, 21st century church in Minnesota, we rely on common sense sometimes rather than God's sense. We know better. We know better. Sometimes we put confidence in pastors, programs. How is this for alliteration? Pastors, programs, processes, procedures, power, and politics instead of the paraclete, instead of the Holy Spirit. Across our nation, we have for a long time now placed greater trust at times in the church, in mammon, rather than the master. It's so tempting. You can't, we used to write out checks. Remember those little slips? You could write a check, you can swipe a card and make the problem go away. Except not if it's spiritual. We're often unaware of our ultimate opponent and often confused about the purpose of the church. And we'll talk more about that next time. But I want for you to take away, loved ones, this morning the reality that there's no local church on planet Earth that is problem-free. There never has been. And ultimately, we don't want, as we pray for this church, our church. You don't want a New Testament church. You want a church that is in alignment and obedience with the instruction of the New Testament. You see the difference? It's an important distinction. And the difference, of course, between a church that dives and a church that thrives is not the presence of trouble. We all have that. And every church. But rather what we do in response. And that's why I'm so encouraged. I need to insert here, I come without a list of things. No one has taken me aside and said, hey, 
You need to be aware of that. And then made this list. I can be happily ignorant. Okay? Because I'm confident that in each of our lives, in each of our churches, the Holy Spirit knows his business. And so he will do the speaking and the leading, all of that stuff. But I want for you to be free from that. I wonder who's been talking to Martin, you know. I, hmm? No. No. So between the hurt that repels us and the healer that loves us is a process, the key to which is humility. James 4, 6. He gives us more that's why Scripture says God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Two things in the remainder of our time together this morning. The process that allows the healing of hurts and hearts is comprised of loving discipline and trusting surrender. Those two things. Loving discipline, trusting surrender. Just a word today, more next week from Hebrews 12. The promise of our Father's loving discipline. Discipline is a promise. It will happen. Hebrews 12, 5. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes, when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he, you remember the word? Loves. Oh, what an encouragement. The Lord disciplines those he loves. That little four-year-old dude, by the way, he was at the event. I saw him briefly every few seconds. This little four-year-old guy is being four. Hey. He didn't like being disciplined, but he's way too young to understand what would have happened if his mama didn't love him enough to discipline him. Oh, man. Down that road's despair. We don't like the Lord's discipline. But some of us have walked with the Lord so long that we've forgotten what it's like to be without him. He disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. We're in. The discipline means we're in. The discipline means we're loved. The call of the Holy Spirit to a solemn assembly. Quite remarkable. I'm so encouraged to hear that about you. All over America, there are churches that are imploding and they will go all the way to the end to their disappearance and they will never hit the pause button and say, Lord, we turn to you. This church is saying, Lord, we turn to you. Amen. Good for you. Endure hardship is discipline. God is treating you as sons. Now, discipline is a promise. It will happen. Secondarily, surrender is a process. It may happen. That's up to you. That's a choice. Discipline will happen because God's love never fails. Surrender, it, submission, it may happen. That's a choice. Seven steps are listed in James 4. Many of you are familiar. You could <laughs> preach this message uh, instead of me. But let me go quickly through those seven steps and then let you, <laughs> encourage you to ruminate on them. Step one, personal surrender to God. James 4, verse 5, submit yourselves then to God. Step one, submit, surrender to God. Step one, submit, surrender to God. Sub step one, submit, 
surrender to God. It begins there. Step two is intentional rejection of the enemy. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Sometimes we get it backward. We get confused, we get resentful, and we resist God, which is surrender to the enemy. (laughs) Don't do that. Submit to God, and he'll empower you to resist the enemy. Third step, run to Jesus, not from him. Run to him. Run to him. James 4.8 says, come near to God, and he will come near to you. Come near to him. It's not a feeling, it's a choice. The child who's been disciplined may not feel like running to the parent, but the measure of their contrition, listen now, parents, you all know this, just reminding you, the measure of the contrition of a disciplined child and the key to their healing and restoration, restoration, is their willingness to be held in their pain. Give me a hug. Hold me. Let me ask you a question, Lakewood. Are you willing to be held? Are you willing to be held? Has whatever events have led to this crossroads for you and God's intervention and your amazing willingness by His grace to respond in the midst of the hurt Are you willing to allow him to hold you? Every parent, every grandparent knows the signal. A little child who's been disciplined is not ready for restoration until they're willing to be held. Long as they're running away, we aren't there yet. And all of us have run away. It's when they're willing to be held that we're ready for the next step. Are you willing to be held? Submit to God, resist the enemy, the devil, run to Jesus, let him hold you. Fourth, on this short series, be serious about cleansing. Wash your hands, James 4.8. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. God's waiting to clean us up. We've got to be willing. Be serious about it. Fifth step, be sober. Be somber. These are emotive words. Be sorry, genuinely sorry for any known sin. And not my words, these are God's. Verse 9, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. I had a father who was a disciplinarian. And just for the record, I have two brothers. It was probably their fault. Just wanted you to know that. But when the time came for discipline, occasionally we would hear as three brothers the word, wipe the smile off your face. Or some version, variant thereof. Why would that be said by a disciplinarian? Because until we're sorry about the sin, there's no discipline that's going to be redemptive in our lives. And one of the, one of the great temptations of our day is to make light of sin. Our culture considers sin as naughty. Wow, you've upended the world, made a mess of multiple lives, and destroyed some, you naughty person. Next. 
Wipe that concept out of your heart. The Lord of glory watched his son bleed out on a cross because of my sin and yours. He never winks at it. He never smirks at it. He never hides his mouth to, to shield a smile about it. He sees through eternity the death of his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate, on that cross. Sin is serious, serious business. Serious enough to die for. So we don't get to just skip through this little thing. Be sorry. Step six, humble yourself. <laughs> we'll come back in a week what that looks like, what that means. But in a word, bend your neck, bow your heart, give up your pride, own the mess. Back to children. I'm overworking the relationship a little bit this morning. But God, when he refers to his people Israel in the Old Testament, he indicts them with these words. You are a stiff-necked people. And again, every parent understands the difference. If a little one who's being disciplined bends the neck in softness and some shame moves through. I'm, I'm not talking about shaming as an intent. I'm talking about when sin has occurred and restoration is needed. When the neck bends, we have contrition. When the neck remains stiff, we've just completed the first round. We aren't there yet. There isn't repentance. There isn't the readiness for restoration. We need to bend our necks. And not, not as a theatrical gesture, but emblematic of our heart. We need to give up our pride. We need to own the mess. And seventh, We've been so gracious to go all through that list. Anticipate and await God's healing because the Bible says in James 4.10, He will lift you up. It's not He might lift you up. It's not if He'll get back to you on it. You follow His word through these steps in the process and He will do His part. He will lift you up. So it lies beyond our power to fix it. We don't lift ourselves. In fact, lifting ourselves created messes in the first place. But there can be no lifting unless there is first a lowering. There can be no restoration unless there is first repentance. There can be no rejoicing unless there is first remorse. And Jesus Christ cannot be Lord of our lives or Lord of our church unless we first abdicate that position. We cannot be Lord. He must be. When we talk again in a week, Lord willing, we'll talk about the subtle forms of spiritual drift. We'll talk about the design of God's discipline, and we'll talk about what genuine humility acts like and looks like going forward. But as I go to prayer here, I want to close with a word to the hurting Sometimes we hurt as a result of our own sin. Sometimes we hurt because our Father has disciplined us. But we have, in each case of our hurt, a choice. Run to him or from him. I invite you, as we go to prayer this morning, to run to him. Even if you don't feel like it, remember he loves you enough for both of us. 
God has a future for you. He has a future for this church family. The first step on that path is surrender. And I invite you to move in his direction as we pray. Do it now. Lord Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for Lakewood Church, a church that you love. Thank you for the process that they have stepped into, for the pause that they have initiated and that you have called for, for the, the turning of eyes upward, for a willingness to also turn eyes downward in contrition. I ask by your grace that you would give every individual who comprises this church family the grace necessary to run to you, to be serious about whatever sin you've drawn to their attention, to be contrite in heart and willing to be held. Do a work so amazing in the weeks and months ahead that no one gives them the credit, but instead they rejoice in you and say only Jesus could have done this. We pray it because of his strength, in the presence of his grace, and in his name. Amen.